unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Damasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. Since their mutual independence in 1947, India and Pakistan have been locked into a fierce rivalry that shows no signs of abating anytime soon. But a new book by the political scientist Christopher Clary, The Difficult Politics of Peace, Rivalry in Modern South Asia, suggests that our traditional narrative of doom and gloom glosses over a rich history of cooperation, contestation, conflict, and conciliation that defies easy explanations. To help us understand why and when rival states pursue conflict and cooperation, I am pleased to welcome Christopher Clary to the show for the very first time. Chris is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Albany and a non-resident fellow at the Stimson Center in D.C. Chris, congrats on the book and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Dylan. Um, so there's a lot that I want to talk to you about today, but I want to maybe begin um, with the origin story of this book. You note in the very opening pages that this book has its origins in a sort of fateful trip you took to South Asia back in the summer of 2002, you know, two decades ago, when India and Pakistan were at that point in time in their sixth month of a prolonged crisis. Um, tell us a little bit about what you saw on this trip, or perhaps didn't see on this trip, that led you to embark on the book that you ultimately wrote. I was a young research assistant uh, for the Henry L. Stimson Center and for a, a senior researcher there, Michael Crapon, more or less from 2000, 2001 until 2003. And one thing that my boss at the time, Michael, really believed was that people should go out to the region early in their career. And so he made a habit of bringing research assistants with him on his trips to, to Delhi and elsewhere. And so in the summer of 2002, Michael said, it's time to go. Um, and we were aware when we visited that India and Pakistan were deep in a crisis that had begun when terrorists had attacked the Indian parliament building on December 13, 2001. But the, the status of that crisis was a little unclear to us. And as we went around to our office calls in New Delhi, it was clear that the Indian officials were still angry and wanted to pass along that anger to American visitors. So when we met the Director General of Military Operations, one of the senior most Indian military officers and uh, army officers that there was, he told us, he said, I know that the Americans are in Pakistan as part of the U.S. military operations in Afghanistan, and I know where the major places of operation are, and I can assure you that we can give the Pakistan army a good bashing without harming American personnel. And, you know, seeing the look on his face, he was ready to do it, I think. And at the tail end of that trip, um, Michael and I learned that there had been a massacre at an Indian army base at Kaluchak in, in Kashmir, where a group of terrorists had managed to get into the army base and murdered quite a few uh, wives and children of Indian army officers. And we left that trip. We got on that flight back home, uh, quite worried that this crisis would turn to war. Um, but it didn't. And and understanding how the Vajpayee government was able to de-escalate that crisis was an early puzzle that I wanted to understand. And so when I later on was looking around for topics, trying to figure out when cooperation was happening, when escalation was happening, and when de-escalation happening seemed like a natural thing for me to examine. 
So I, I want to get back to this kind of variation and kind of peace and conflict that, that you just alluded to. Before I do that, let me ask you just on a personal note um, to reflect on Michael Crapon, your former boss at Stimson, who first took you to India. Uh, many of our listeners will know that Michael passed away in July of this year. He was widely considered to be you know, one of the most important, impactful scholars of nuclear policy uh, of his generation. Um Chris, in your own words, I mean, how, how do you see the, the the legacy that Michael has left us? Well, Michael, you know, I think has been clear in the weeks since he passed. Uh, his foremost legacy has been the mentorship that he provided to a generation of scholars. They're all around town, and many of them have have kind of written thoughtfully about what Michael did for them. And, you know, I'm one of those beneficiaries. When I heard that Michael had shifted to hospice care uh, in the final months of the of his cancer that took his life, I told him, I said, I want to come down to see you in Charlottesville, where he had a farm. And I needed to go down there in part to give him a copy of the book, but also more importantly, to tell him that he transformed my life. He totally changed it. I'm from Wichita, Kansas, a lovely little city in the middle of the United States of about 300,000 people. And I had prior to working for Michael done mostly Latin American studies. Um, and Michael and his team, hadn't. they kind of looked at my CV when I applied for an internship there. And they said, oh, we haven't had anybody from that part of the country in a long time. Maybe we should take a chance. And uh, they hired me on afterward. And when I visited India, um, you know, I kind of said, this is a place I could work on for decades and decades and and not uh, ever get exhausted, that there would be some new thing that would fascinate me for the longest time to come. And I told Michael that he had gotten me into this and he had changed the trajectory of my life. Uh, my spouse also works on South Asian politics. And so when I look around my life every day. It's because of what Michael did. And importantly, the other lesson I think that Michael imparted in me was when I was at Stimson, we had a motto that that is a little you know short, but was that it was about pragmatic steps toward ideal objectives. And I, I have taken that to heart because the ideal objectives are actually quite easy typically to lay out what we're trying to achieve about peace and prosperity. But the politics of the situation often means that it's quite messy and difficult to even move incrementally toward that. And if we stay focused on the ideal all the time, I'm just worried we'll, we'll be dazzled by something that we never can even get close to achieving. Well, that was a very touching tribute. Um, thanks for that. And we'll link to to some of Michael's work on in the show page. Uh, you know, just coming back to the book, uh, you know, you say up front that to talk about the India-Pakistan relationship as quote-unquote conflict unending is at best incomplete. Um, you know, within this protracted conflict that has gone on for decades, you argue there's quite a lot of heterogeneity. Um, unpack that for us, if you could, because in our shorthand, when we talk about this, we often talk about, you know, India and Pakistan, you know, the two nuclear armed rivals for the past 75 years. But um, that's rather simple. You know, I'm, I'm building on the work of other scholars. Uh, and I think especially in the early period, I've, I've drawn a lot from Pallavi Raghavan's book, Animosity at Bay, about the first years of the kind of incipient rivalry. And, you know, the, the leaders on both sides have managed to achieve a lot. 
you know, we focus on the things they haven't achieved. The Kashmir dispute is ongoing and it's very violent um, and has has caused enormous hardship. But, you know, in 1947, very few of the borders were defined, not just Kashmir. Uh, today, basically all of them, except for Kashmir and the and the Sir Creek estuary have been have been defined. And that's a a slow process. At many points during the relationship, trade has been okay. Uh, at many points, there's been law enforcement cooperation. There used to be criminal gangs that raided across the border, both directions, that the you know law enforcement personnel, Ministry of Home Affairs, Ministry of Interior, they got together and and found a way to stop some of that craziness. Um, and you know we have a serious flooding situation now in Pakistan today as we record this. And I wouldn't surprise me at all if India and Pakistan find a way to to have tangible aid that makes the lives better of these poor Pakistan. Pakistanis that are that are affected by the these incredible floods. So that if you look at the relationship, there are ups and downs. And to just kind of only have an account that goes from bad period to bad period and fast forwards through the periods of cooperation, um, I think both misses the heterogeneity that was present, but also um, complicates our imagination because some of these steps when cooperation was working for years and years could have taken off and the and the rivalry uh, could have could have gone in a more in a more fundamentally benevolent but in a better way so you know you have the spectrum of conflict and cooperation and all of these points in between and to try to understand you know when we see certain behavior versus others you have this new theory you introduced called leader primacy theory and i'm wondering if you can just sort of help us understand the logic, right? Um, you know, what's the intuition behind this theory you put forward and and, and what does it add to, I, I think, the, the copious explanations that have been put forward by others already to explain Indo-Pakistan relations, right, and other similar geopolitical rivalries? Yeah, it takes um, a certain lack of humility to look at a, a relationship that's been documented so well and to think that you can still add value. Um, and I thought ultimately I could do so in a couple of different ways. And one is to try to think systematically and not just descriptively about what was going on. Um, and other is to, in doing so, also try to bring to bear new resources that brilliant scholars that had come before me didn't have access to. Right. So one one advantage I have is I have, you know, tens of thousands of pages of documents that they didn't have that I can go through, as well as interviews with people that are now at a stage in their life. They're willing to be a little more truthful about the roles they played at different aspect in different aspects of the relationship. And, you know, in looking at the India-Pakistan rivalry, I was informed by three years I spent in the U.S. government in the Pentagon, mostly working on India policy. And my time in government uh, convinced me that everything is kind of hard to do, that inertia is the dominant force of governmental life. And inertia is enabled by the presence of, of actors all throughout the system that can veto moves in a, in a more positive or, or different direction. And I had watched from afar the back channel process that was going on between Prime Minister Manmohan Singh and, and Pervez Musharraf. We had in the U.S. government had kept a little tabs on it, though it was quite discreet what, what they had managed to, to be working on. Um, and we also saw it fall apart. And, and it fell apart 
because Pervez Musharraf's regime in Pakistan fell apart for reasons that were totally unrelated to his India policy. Um, and, and my takeaway from, from those years is that my foreign interlocutors, when we came on, on comparatively less problematic U.S.-India concerns, is they told me how hard it was for them to do stuff in their systems. And I said, what, what I want to do to understand the India-Pakistan rivalry is figure out when there are leaders that are in place that are able to enact change. That the, the key explanatory variable that I need to focus in on is how do leaders obtain primacy within their system and how do they enact the change that the system resists. And it resists quite fiercely when it comes to issues of rivalry. There's lots of really powerful, often armed actors that don't want the rivalry to get better. Uh, you, I wasn't planning on asking about this, but you know, you, you sort of uh, opened up this line of questioning about you know your experience at, at DoD. Tell us a bit about what you were doing there, because I think for for, for most folks who are in uh, my line of work, or especially your line of work, uh, government service is 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 not a prerequisite, right? A lot of people become academics who work on on South Asia without ever having spent a day. Uh, inside government. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you ended up at the Pentagon and how you think it's kind of shaped your own way of thinking. Again, this is Michael Crapon's footprint on my life. I had gone off to the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School, where I worked with two great researchers, Peter Lavoy and a retired Pakistani brigadier, Feroz Hassan Khan. And um, we had gone to India and Pakistan quite a bit as part of that to do projects on both the Kargil War and the 2001-2002 crisis, uh, trying to understand what was going on. Um, and then that was a, was a two-year commitment. And I was looking back for jobs, and Michael told me that the Pentagon was, was hiring. They wanted people to work on South Asia policy. And they were having difficulty finding people that had been to South Asia because Washington in the early 2000s had, had and I think still does have, a deficit of South Asia expertise. So I put in my resume and and they hired me and I started in January 2006 um, and India at that time and to some extent still is fits in a weird role in the U.S. system because it's not an ally, but it's incredibly important. And the U.S. system is run by lawyers and likes cookie cutter solutions to the extent possible. And India doesn't doesn't like to be have to any other cookie cutter shape used on it. It wants a specific India shape. And so a lot of my time in the bureaucracy was spent trying to customize solutions that the U.S. had for other partners around the world and to get them to match the Indian concerns, to answer those concerns. And that involved a lot of trying to sell India weaponry um, because uh, that is a more involved process than people might think because billions and billions of dollars are at stake. And the, and the Pentagon guards some secrets very fiercely. And at a country like India that has an enormous amount of Russian origin equipment is, is of concern to um, particularly older uh, bureaucrats and military officers in the building. You know, the, the book looks at this huge sweep of history, right, from 1947 to the present. Um, and you said something a bit earlier about the access that you were able to uh, obtain to previously uh, unseen documents and and reflections from policymakers. Tell us a bit about you know what you were able to get your hands on that maybe other scholars hadn't. Uh, was this just because you know things had become declassified in recent years um, that uh, that that others hadn't uh, previously had a chance to look at? 
the in in all of the systems that exist, there now are thankfully mandatory declassification processes. In India, it's the it's the least far along, though it's been moving. Um, and uh, a former Indian Foreign Secretary, Shiv Shankar Menon, in particular, oversaw a process to to declassify a huge chunk of of documents relating to the India Pakistan relationship, and and they exist on the web. They're in a sort of little hidden corner of the web. Um, but those help provide a, a, a framework. And then I could go back in my trips to Delhi and Islamabad and Rawalpindi and elsewhere and say to individuals, hey, what happened in this meeting? It's a little unclear, either from the journalistic accounts or the declassified documents. And then in the more contemporary era, we have um, you know, a greater paucity that always occurs. But the, the thankful thing is that we have more individuals that that saw those things up close and they're still around. And, um, you know, some are more forthcoming than others. And, and, and once you can find somebody that is forthcoming, then that often can provoke other people to, to give you a little bit more information as well. But, you know, we are in a golden era of online documentation and for researchers like me that are based in Albany, New York, it's, it's so thankful. And, you know, there are a variety of portals now that the government of India maintains that are just rich with, with documents. And you can read, pages and pages of telegrams from the, you know, the intelligence bureau and uh, office in Srinagar telling you what was going on in Kashmir during uh, right before crucial votes in the state. I mean, it's just really there's there's more documents than any one person could go through in a lifetime. Um, and and it's it was a great, great pleasure to spend time uh, with these really interesting personalities that tried uh, to fashion a better, better relationship between the two states. You know, Chris, when you when you talk about leader primacy theory, for some readers, that might sound like a fancy word for regime type, right? I mean, India, for all of its faults, has largely been a democracy for the past 75 years. Of course, Pakistan has struggled to adhere to the principles of civilian democratic government. When you talk about you know, the importance of the concentration of executive authority over foreign policy, is this simply a watchword for regime type, or is there something more complicated going on? Yeah, in the book, I, I focus on, on how hard it is to leaders to achieve the policy they want to achieve. And what I don't want, what I would, would want to push back against is, is a belief that that's me encouraging some sort of authoritarianism. Um, and that, that's partially just because the the legacy of authoritarianism in South Asia um, does not always mean that these authoritarian leaders had the ability to achieve the policy they wanted to achieve. In fact, you can look at some military dictators in Pakistan's past. Yahya Khan comes to mind, um, who never really had control of his own system. And you had this very harsh, uh, quite cruel, obviously, to the Bengali military regime um, that that also didn't have ever leader primacy theory, that he that he managed to to feel hemmed in by other competitors within the system. Um, and you had uh, plenty of Democrats, especially in the Indian case, who did manage to achieve control over their systems. Uh, Jawaharlal Nehru comes uh, foremost to mind, but also uh, the Vajpayee government. Um, you have a, a leader who really did not, um, in his 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 attempts to gain control over the of the difficult Indian system, did not resort. Um, to the authoritarian measures that that say Indira Gandhi did, so it 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 doesn't. I think this idea of when leaders are are able to enact foreign policy change, 
doesn't correlate very tightly in my mind to regime type. Um, and I think the evidence from the South Asian cases suggests that as well. There's plenty of uh, quite admirable um, figures in, in India's history, especially, that are, are able to turn the system uh, in ways that many people try to oppose. Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. You know, the book is replete with details of every crisis the two countries have faced over the last seven and a half decades. Let me just ask you about one period, which is the years between 1955 and 1960. Uh, particularly towards the end of that period, you see this burst of frenetic conciliatory activity between India and Pakistan. Um and, you know, this is a period that others have looked at, including Pallavi Raghavan, who you mentioned earlier. Uh, we had a conversation with her on the show, and we'll, we'll link to that as well. How does your emphasis on kind of the primacy of leadership help us understand the perhaps surprising move towards conciliation that we saw in the latter half of that decade? The India-Pakistan relationship was had been stuck throughout the 1950s and in part had been stuck because of political chaos basically within the Pakistani state. So Pakistan's great curse uh, was that Jinnah and then uh, Prime Minister Liaquat Ali Khan died so early, right? Jinnah in 1948 and then Liaquat in, in 1951 at the, at the, uh, with the result of an assassination against him. And after Liaquat's death, his assassination, there's no leader in the Pakistani state that's able to direct the ship in any given direction. Pakistan can't even fashion a constitution for many more years. And Ayub Khan comes in uh, eventually as, as military dictator. And you might think that as a military man who for the last decade of his career had 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 thought about how to fight and win wars against india primarily that the relationship was suff would suffer and you know early on uh nehru you can see in his writings is is worried that now now the the wolf really has taken over the hen house um but ayub khan as other military dictators uh have done in subsequent dictatorships goes to india and says i'm not a warmonger that's not what i'm about and in the early parts of Ayub's era, uh, he's able to, to work out a very cooperative relationship with Nehru. And they have all these lingering disputes that had been kind of stuck in the relationship since 47 about borders, about trade, a, you know, a dozen other things, not least of which was how to manage the fact that the British had created a system of waterways and canals to deal with the Indus River Valley that was designed for a united British India. And the water rights that are associated with that um, had to, they had to come up with some sort of enduring solution. And the evidence is pretty clear that Ayub went to his negotiating team and told them to stop dragging their feet and find a solution. And eventually they got to the Indus Waters Treaty, which is which is still around, which was backed up at the time by World Bank money. And um, 
and is one of the more enduring cooperative achievements in in the history of the subcontinent. You had a, a another dramatic moment in bilateral relations uh, several years later, 1971, with the Liberation War, which resulted in Bangladesh's independence. Um, but as you note in the book, this is followed by a surprising period of rapprochement between India and Pakistan in the mid-1970s. Um, you know, uh, some observers might say that this reflects a kind of Nixon goes to China dynamic, uh, since, you know, both Bhutto on the Pakistani side, Indra Gandhi on the Indian side, had well-known reputations as foreign policy hawks. You take this on directly in your book um, and express some skepticism about the kind of Nixon goes to China uh, kind of hardliner uh, explanation. Tell us why. You know, the there is something to the fact that people that have a, a reputation for uh, foreign policy hawkishness have certain reputational advantages when they're talking to their own systems about the need for cooperation. But it's also the case that we've seen cooperation in other eras outside of this, the 1970s, where people that are, don't have reputations for hardliner uh, status are able to get things done, not least of which is Jawaharlal Nehru, who had a reputation as an idealist and as a peacemaker, um, despite his fraught relationship with Pakistan in the late 1940s. Um, obviously, people you know associate that part of Nehru's legacy with his China policy, um, but that that was around when he was negotiating this cooperation with Ayub. Uh, he he was able to to convince people that's what needed to be done, and there have been uh, other leaders, um, uh, including Rajiv Gandhi in later periods, who were similarly had sort of reputations that weren't about being hardliners and hawkishness. Um, so, I it is there is something to it. I don't want to ignore the the political benefit of being able to say no one was harsher about my intrepid enemy than me. But now is the time for cooperation. But it's also the case we've had cooperation in other periods uh, by people that did not have those those reputations. You know, when you think about the recent past um, and you know recent examples of. India-Pakistan uh, conflict. You you had this very interesting line. I just want to quote from the book. You write at one point that quote the conventional wisdom among many South Asian security scholars suggests that at root the problem is Pakistan's revisionist army that has been emboldened by its nuclear capability to engage in a high stakes game of proxy violence against India. End quote. Um, again, here you're somewhat skeptical of the conventional wisdom. What do you think it's missing? You know, it's it is commonplace to talk about. Well, okay, what explains why the rivalry is enduring? For people to say, well, you know, the problem is the Pakistan army, and that is a, a broader. The answer is part of a broader tradition in international relations scholarship about the danger of revisionists to the to the global order. That if we could just get these revisionists out of the way, then peace and prosperity would emerge. And you know, I think. There are a few challenges with that. First, just from a theoretical aspect, it's really actually kind of hard to take that idea of revisionism and then go out into the wild and as a sort of amateur taxonomist say, oh, this is a revisionist state and this is a status quo preserving or status quo defending state. You know, as I think I lay out in the book, you know, was 
India a revisionist state when it took over Hyderabad and Junagadh early after 1947? Was it a revisionist state when it took over Goa later on? Was it a revisionist state when it took the Siachen Glacier in 1984? Was it a revisionist state um, more recently when Home Minister Amit Shah says, I'm, I'm willing to die for Azad Kashmir? What are you talking about? That it's uh, that way, you know, he was being criticized by the opposition in parliament. And he says, I'm willing to give my life for Azad Kashmir. Does that, you know, he's a senior person, one of the most senior people in the Indian system. Is, is, is India today a revisionist state? Um, so I think it's actually harder to say, okay, there's a clear revisionist, a clear status quo preserving state. And then I think besides that, though, if we were to look at the actor that has the greatest parochial interest to advance the rivalry within the Pakistani system, there's no doubt that it is the Pakistan army. And there is also no doubt, I think, as my account uh, does reasonable justice to, that the Pakistan army has definitely uh, sabotaged and spoiled elements, uh, periods of cooperation in the past. Um, and I'm happy to go into that. But... It is also the case that the Pakistan army, especially when it is governing Pakistan and is is stuck with the difficulties of of trying to advance the interest of a society um, in the developing world, that the Pakistan army, the military dictators have often decided that the best interest of the Pakistani state can be advanced by improving the relationship with India. So if you were to go through any list of the periods of great, greatest cooperation between India and Pakistan, that list would include the period we just talked about between Ayub Khan and Jawaharlal Nehru in the late 1950s. It would include the period after Zulfi Karbudo comes to power in 1971. And it would include uh, the back-channel process between Pervez Musharraf and Manmohan Singh. So two of those three kind of golden periods for for hope and optimism are are overseen by people that wore khaki for most of their careers. Um, and I think a, a simple um, account that, that blames variation on the, on the Pakistan military misses out on that. You know, Chris, as you think about the future uh, and something you address in the in the closing pages of the book, you write that there is ample evidence for continued pessimism uh, in terms of India and Pakistan somehow finding a way forward and resolving their many existing disagreements and conflicts. Um, now, you wrote that in in a slightly different time, um, you know, uh, when Imran Khan was was still in power. We've seen uh, in, in the weeks and months since then his, his ouster, uh, a new coalition government come to power. Um, real questions about what the current state of politics is in, in, in Pakistan. Um, does his ouster change your assessment in any fundamental way, either negatively or positively? You know, that chapter, um, as you might expect, was uh, the more recent period, was when I had to look at and think and, you know, kind of digest news stories as they come in so I can figure out what I believe fundamentally is, was going on with the Pakistani government system. And I said this was, you know, initially it was a very interesting period because Imran Khan uh, had decided to hug the army as as closely as he could. Probably our mutual acquaintance, Moeed Yusuf, you know, would go around town and say that, you know, the, the civilians now have a partnership with the army. We're, we're equal partners, which is not the sort of civil military relationship that might be taught in U.S. Army war colleges. Um but that partnership collapsed, uh, which is not atypical, I think, in the in the history of, of Pakistani politicians that are brought to the public forefront by army patronage. Uh, to some extent, that that describes what happened with Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, and and additionally uh, describes what happened with uh, Nawaz Sharif himself. Right. So so that um, that collapsed, and we're in 
I think maybe the most fluid period for Pakistani politics since the 1990s and maybe even the 1970s. Um, Imran Khan uh, and General Bajwa, who is in his final months of his current tenure as army chief, uh, are in a in a real fight um, for for political power uh, with the other major political actors in Pakistan, the, both the PMLN and the PPP, sort of there and kind of benefiting from this this fight, but also being worried about getting crushed uh, in in the fight as well. And if there is anything that is the opposite of leader primacy, it is the current situation in Pakistan. It's it's almost impossible for me to imagine the system being able to sustain negotiations with India and achieve an enduring cooperative achievement just because every day is dealing with the politics of perpetual crisis. Um, and I think it is also hard for me to imagine that the next army chief will be as pragmatic toward India as Bajwa has been. Um, I don't think we need to make... Uh, Bajwa a saint, but I do think the evidence is quite abundant that he was not first and foremost an India hawk. Um, and they were able to, with Imran Khan's government, able to achieve a ceasefire in Kashmir that's held for um, more than a year. But I'm I'm quite worried that that will be a, a transitory achievement. And ceasefires in Kashmir have been uh, spoiled in the past by by civil military fights within Pakistan, and I think that could occur again. And it is um, sad in a way uh, because Narendra Modi uh, does have, I think, the political capital in the Indian system to achieve big things, even though ideologically he has some challenges with how he thinks and, and works on Pakistan policy. It's quite evident, I think, from the, the his first tenure as prime minister that he was willing to do some symbolic things with Pakistan uh, to try to kind of take some pages from the Bajpai playbook and visit Raiwind and other other things that really exposed him to some political risk. And then sadly, with the attack on the Indian air base, um, th that that risk came came to bear. Um, and, and I think his team has been unwilling to expose him to those same dangers in subsequent years. And, and the relationship has been has been stuck. And I'm, I'm quite worried we could have another crisis in, in the months and years to come. Chris, let me just ask you about about the Modi government's kind of outlook on Pakistan, right? Because, you know, some people have said, look, uh, Modi invited Nawaz Sharif to his inauguration in 2014, as he invited the other uh, heads of state of the Sark countries. Um, he made that dramatic surprise visit uh, to, to Pakistan. I think it was on Christmas Day or, or around that time. Um, even when there were militant attacks on Indian military installations uh, perpetrated by groups that find safe haven in Pakistan, the government invited Pakistani investigators to come look at the evidence with their own eyes. Um, uh, do you think that this was a genuine effort to try and find common ground, or was it rather uh, kind of using stagecraft to kind of show how duplicitous Pakistan was and therefore ensure that India kind of had, you know, occupied the, the, the moral high ground? I mean, how do you parse, you know, what was going through? We now have, you know, eight years of experience with this government. As best you can tell, you know, what do you think the initial thought process was? You know, something I talk about in the book is how do we distinguish between what I call peace theater from sincere peace initiatives? And it's really hard. Um, 
And sometimes the theatrics themselves do achieve meaningful things, you know. So sometimes theater does, you know, if you could say, okay, what is the ceasefire in Kashmir now or previous ceasefires? Is it theater? Is it real? Well, for the villagers that live near the line of control, you know, they're not getting shelled. It doesn't matter. They don't care if it's theater or not. They just want their lives to be better. And so periods of theatrics can still be meaningful for those on the ground. But you know, it's it will take a while. We'll have to, you know, the Modi team is still in place. They're starting to get quite old, uh, but not as many of them have retired as you might expect. Um, and we'll have to wait for some declassified documents uh, and future historians. But my read is that he was pretty sincere to give to give the Pakistanis a chance and to give Nawaz Sharif a chance in particular. I do think there is some sophistication on the Indian side that that the leadership of the PPP and, and the PMLN are in a different place on India policy. But where there is a disagreement, from what I can tell, among Indian officials and the Indian chattering classes, is whether the, the army and, and sometimes even subsections within the Pakistan army, whether their spoiling role means that it's not, not only not worth an effort, that an effort might actually be dangerous, that it might invite these sorts of attacks. And so... My read of of that those first years of of time in office, including the the joint investigation itself, was that it it's pretty costly to do, and I think suggests some sincerity in Modi. And then they have, um, I think, in my read, have gone too far in the other direction um, and have were very slow uh, to try to take General Bajwa at his word that he was willing to try to craft a more cooperative relationship. And it you know, took years. And obviously, there were setbacks, um, including uh, crises and, and, the government, and the Indian government's own decision about what to do with Kashmir, which I think was mostly um, about domestic politics. But the August 2019 decision clearly is uh, irks a huge section of Pakistani society and makes it a lot harder. Uh, for cooperation between the two states. Um, so I see sincerity, but uh, I also think we are in a period where I'm not going to, we're not going to see a lot of courage from Modi when it comes to Pakistan policy. You know, Chris, I, I want to sort of bring this conversation to an end by, by asking you um, to reflect a little bit on what your book means for the relationship between India and China. You know, you note in the final pages of the book that in many ways, India's rivalry with China has eclipsed its frosty relationship with Pakistan, right? I mean, you see this in terms of elite discourse. You certainly see this in terms of how public opinion um, has really soured on China within the sort of Indian street, right? Um, wh what do you think that this book can teach us about the fate of this uh, emerging, still evolving, but highly consequential relationship between China and India? I think the same dynamics are at play um, where leaders that have more control on their system have been willing to take bigger chances. Um, and I think if you look at kind of the collapse of Nehru's China policy, it wasn't just about the border skirmishes. It was also about the fact that the Indian Supreme Court told him that it was going to be incredibly difficult to do any land swaps with China in 1960. And, the, and, and as Nehru was trying to figure out how to to deal with this emerging border controversy, he he realized the politics internally were souring against him. And, and, you know, part of the reason the more cooperative period with Ayub Khan 
collapses, as Nehru is also dealing with the separate border controversy with China and, and the and people within his system were being incredibly critical of, of, of what was going on. And he lost the sort of political authority to work on either front. Um, so I, I see these same dynamics playing out over the years, but you're right that the India-China relationship now has a lot of the same dynamics. And it's the and, and partially because of this uh, emotional salience of the China issue with some co-authors, uh, the Stimson Center uh, w- managed to give us some money uh, to to do a big survey in India earlier this year. And we found the number of Indians that w- said they had a great dislike of China was basically statistically indistinguishable from the number of Indians that said they had a great dislike for, for Pakistan. Um, so... You, one doesn't want to draw too much from one moment in time, but I, you know, my read of, of of Indian public opinion is that soured in China in a big way, and that's going to hem in the the room for maneuver that Modi has has in that place, and I think that explains to some extent why the government has not been that transparent about the status of the border conflict because it wants through opacity to give itself room for maneuver um, because it knows that if it was more transparent, it actually might actually arouse public sentiments that then him it, its ability to, to negotiate uh, in down the road. My guest on the show this week is political scientist Christopher Clary. He's the author of a brand new book, The Difficult Politics of Peace, Rivalry in Modern South Asia. Sushant Singh, who's a well-known defense and security commentator, writes that Clary's book is a forensic examination that is bound to challenge conventional wisdom and traditional arguments about the subcontinent. Chris, congrats on the book. Thanks for taking the time and best of luck with the rollout. Thanks so much, Milan. Grant the Masha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HD Smartcast original and is available on hdsmartcast.com, India's fastest growing podcasting platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. Helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, granthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Caroline Duckworth, Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff J. Panada is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smart Car